the trope of Bitcoin fixes this, it's not wrong, right? It actually has a lot of truth to it. And I think that's why it's often used. It just, it doesn't fix everything, unfortunately. It is just generally expensive to live these days. And so people should technically have a savings rate of at least 10%. Um, we generally recommend at least 20% of pre-tax income. It does tend to help if you stop thinking about everything materially around you and you start looking more inward to be able to actually delay gratification because then what you're thinking is, okay, I already have everything that I need. I don't necessarily have everything I want, but I do probably already have everything I need. So for a lot of people, right, if they did stack appropriately and then Bitcoin does 10x, 100x, depending on how long you've been holding it, now you're looking at estate planning issues where you probably need to be considering trusts um, and other just other complex planning to make sure you're not giving it all away to the government should something happen to you. I think the other thing on the estate planning consider side that people don't consider is um, how much privacy you might lose when you pass away. As it stands right now, any transaction you do, whether it's a penny or you know a thousand dollars, you do tech. You technically have converted from Bitcoin back to fiat, and you need to pay taxes on whatever capital gains you have. Morgan Rochard is the founder of Origin Wealth Advisors, a CFA, a CFP, and a well-known Bitcoin advocate. In our conversation, we talked about the challenge of preserving one's wealth on a fiat standard. We talked about the things that Bitcoin does fix and the things it does not fix. And then we explored the regulations and tax implications of Bitcoin and Lightning Network payments today. As always, the best way to support this show is by sending in sats over the Lightning Network. You can use any podcasting 2.0 app. There are dozens of them but my favorite to use is Fountain. Before we get into today's show, just a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by Voltage. Voltage is the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning node infrastructure. Today's show is also sponsored by Stackwork. And Stackwork is a Lightning-powered transcription tool that takes the best of AIs and humans to create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. We'll have more from Voltage and Stackwork later in the show. Morgan, thank you for joining me today and welcome to the show. Uh, I want to I want to start before we get into all the questions that I have around your your work as financial advisor and Bitcoin financial advice and tax planning and all these things. I want to start with your background in Bitcoin. Tell listeners a bit about how you first discovered Bitcoin and why you decided to start uh, Origin Wealth Advisors. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I first discovered Bitcoin, I want to say it was 2011, when I was reading the Mises Institute's, it was like an article on the Mises Institute. And the Bitcoin price had gone from a dollar to $2. And so it was very exciting. <laughs> it was very exciting for the Mises Institute, or whoever wrote the article, I actually don't even remember who wrote the article. But I found it really interesting. And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'll just buy like a couple hundred bucks of it, whatever. Um, except that I couldn't figure out how to buy it. <laughs> and then I could, I was, I'm not that tech savvy or I've become more tech savvy over time. So mining just seemed totally out of the question. Um, and I went onto Mt. Gox at the time to go do it and you had to wire money to Japan <laughs> and not into your own account. And so given my background in financial services, this just seemed like, you know, complete wire fraud. Like I was just going to lose, you know, hundred dollars or whatever I was going to send, which, and I was also going to pay a $25 wire fee, which at the time that was, you know, that was astronomical for me. <laughs> so I just, you know, I said, ah, oh, whatever, this is stupid. And I just, I forgot about it. Um, and then I met Pierre, my now husband in 2013, and he was, you know, over the top into Bitcoin, even back then. So 
um, on our first date, he was talking about Bitcoin, like probably 75% of it. <laughs> um, and he sent me a Bitcoin and um, I was like, oh, okay, this is, yeah. And I kind of, I got it from there. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent on board the way he was back then, but I started like getting more interested and listening to things and going to meetups and getting more involved. Um, and so at the time I was working for UBS financial services in a large private wealth team, just doing traditional asset management. Um, my background, I started actually as an equity options trader. And then from there moved into wealth management, worked at Merrill Lynch for a while, moved with my team to UBS. And I just realized that all these wirehouses are kind of the same. Um, it doesn't really matter where you do it. Some of them have more prestige than others just because of how they market themselves or whatever, but there's not necessarily anything all that different about what they do behind the scenes for clients. And I found that actually kind of upsetting because wealth management is not supposed to be about, you know, people going to work and just making a bunch of money, like on wall street where you're moving paper around you're actually supposed to go there and help a client, right? Help them achieve wealth. And you make money on the side of them achieving wealth, um, not just turning their portfolio to make extra money. And it just seemed like there was a lot of turnover in mutual funds and stocks um, and other products that just had high commissions. Um, and it didn't really matter which location I was at. They were doing the same thing <laughs> behind the scenes. They just had different products to sell. So um, it seemed pretty clear to me that I either needed to go find a completely different job or I needed to start my own firm. And so I decided to start my own firm. <laughs> Um, and I started really as more of a portfolio management style firm. Um, but over time I came to realize that clients don't really need that as much as they need financial planning. They really need help with, you know, not just the investing part, which is very important, obviously like in the day and age that we live in with inflation and everything else that we have happening, people do need to get invested and need to get invested properly, but they also need to know how much money they need to save for retirement or how much house they can buy or just help with cash flow management in general, or maybe they have some specific goal around their kids or travel or whatever it is, but they want help planning that out. And so I found that these questions were coming at me often, but I didn't necessarily have answers for them. So I started to study up um, and I got my CFP in 2016. And then I changed the way my practice worked completely. Um, and along the way, I had you know, was still interested in Bitcoin, was buying Bitcoin, doing, you know, was still involved in Bitcoin. Um, but I wasn't really that sure about how to advise on it in my practice. And so I just sort of didn't. Um, but then people actually started asking me about it in 2016. So I started actually advising on Bitcoin in 2016. And then in 2017, with the run up, I got a lot more questions about it. And in 2018, when it didn't go away, I got even more questions about it. Um, and then in 2020, I just thought, okay, well, everybody needs to just own this now in my practice. So we just, you know, made rounds and just started getting everyone involved, whether they kind of liked it or not. Um, and for the most part, we got, you know, 95% of clients involved where they own some portion, something of Bitcoin in some way. Um, and so that felt really good and successful. And then when I started marketing about the fact that we offer this as a service, Bitcoiners just came kind of piling in because <laughs> there's really no place for us to go. So um, now I basically offer services to people who have, you know, 20 plus to 100% of their net worth in Bitcoin and have financial planning concerns. Very cool. Were you at all surprised with the reaction of people who were not Bitcoiners already when you kind of onboarded them all and got 95% of them to allocate to Bitcoin, were you were you surprised by that amount? I was actually, I thought it would be much lower, to be honest. Um, 
But most people just were like, all right, yeah, I guess, you know, you haven't steered me wrong in the past. So let's just do this. It's going to be okay. Um, we were able to actually like legitimately orange pill some of these people. Um, some people are just like, all right, 1%, whatever. It's fine. You know, <laughs> some people is like 3%. Okay, good. You know, I can deal with 3%, but no big deal. And then some people, when we started in that 1% to 3% range, started thinking, oh, well, this is actually something where I, you know, I want to get more involved. And so um, I would say for, you know, a lot of my clients, it was one, one, one hour conversation and we allocated one to 3%. For a lot of clients after that, though, probably of the 95%, another, like half of those were then like, okay, let's have more conversations about this. Why is this important? Why are you recommending this? And then one to 3%, once we actually started talking about why it was important, didn't really seem like enough. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was really surprised by the reaction because, you know, you often just think the average person thinks of Bitcoin as something that's hyper volatile and you have to be a criminal to be involved in it. Um, and so once you just kind of flip that on your head, even for a one hour discussion, it seems that most people can get on board. Um, and I think the the true problem is really that there's so much access to like bad news about Bitcoin, positive news about these other coins. And so... You, there's not really like unless you sort of get into like the Bitcoin community somehow just because you're interested in economics or so forth, you're not really getting the right information um, because I, I mean, I, I like to think about it as like Bitcoin is not really something that's that easy to make money off of. That's kind of mm. it's just it just is a money. It's not a product you're selling. It's not some, you know, um, fancy story that's being sold by a, a VC firm. Right. It's it's just money. And so it's not that exciting for any of these media companies to be talking about what it is and why it's important because it doesn't really benefit them in any way. And so there's a true conflict of interest, I think, from like the media perspective of how they're portraying it because they don't, they can't really benefit from it. And then how, like what Bitcoin can actually do. Is that also the same as the conflict of interest that you saw with uh, some of the wealth advisors who were, you know, taking fees and, and asking you to continue trading rather than looking out for, you know, trying to grow your wealth as fast as, as, you know, to be as large as possible over time. Um, it, was there a, a bit of that going on as well? Like a yeah, conflict for sure. For sure. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where there's, if you, if you go into these large wirehouse type firms, like a Merrill Lynch and a UBS, they have their set of products. Any, on any of these products, you can charge somewhere between, let's say 1% to, you know, up to probably 10%, depending on what the product is. So there's a huge incentive to go towards the 10% products because these advisors get paid on a quarterly basis. And if they hit specific hurdles within their practices, they get bonuses based on how much they produce per quarter. So, I mean, this was also, my firm is now eight, eight or nine years old. So this is a decade ago. They might've changed how the compensation structure is, but probably not, um, probably like most advisors are still doing this kind of thing where they're still selling, you know, these products where they can make additional money in that quarter so that they get that bonus. So the the incentives aren't really aligned, right? Because it's not in the client's best interest to pay somewhere between four and a half and 10% up front on a product, right? Because they're immediately in the hole. Um, whereas it's definitely in the advisor's incentive to figure out a way of how to get this into a client's portfolio. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why my firm charges a flat fee. Um, we just charge a flat fee based on net worth. Um, we found that as net worth goes up, 
comp it's generally more complicated and we're doing more work for that client and we should be compensated fairly for it but the client always knows what they're paying and they know for the year what they're going to be paying and then you can basically make a decision okay is this what i want to pay or do i want to go seek services elsewhere right like am i getting the right value out of this whereas like in a wirehouse setting you don't really know what you're paying the advisor never really tells you their compensation and then you sort of see it later on your statement type of a thing it's not the incentives aren't aligned, especially because if you don't know what you're paying, then you can't necessarily say no to it. Mm. And so they get they also get a bonus if they if they get you a certain return in a, in a quarter, but they don't they don't have a downside if they fail to do that. Is that uh, no. So in um, in wealth management, there's no performance bonuses either. So mm. it's not actually about even getting a good return for the client. It's literally about how much commission you can generate in that quarter. So what like what kind of products you can sell to that client. They've moved more towards what they call fee-based, where they have something called a wrap account. It's similar to how um, fee-only advisors, not me, but there are advisors out there that charge an asset center management fee. So the wrap account at um, at these places would be that, where they basically they charge an asset center management fee. They actually do cover the trading fees in there, so it helps align the incentives a little bit more. They're not trading as much since they have to pay for the trading fees. Um, but in addition to that, they could still sell that client other products, whereas a, an advisor who says that they're fee only will never do that. They don't sell products. They only have one fee. So the client always knows what they're paying. Got it. Okay. I want to start off this conversation with just really broad here. Let's just talk about money and dealing with money because I find this to be a fascinating topic that it's very simple to talk about and it's very hard to do. And, you know, in finance, we have all these, we have all these simple sayings, you know, spend less than you earn. We have uh, only invest what you're willing to lose. Don't use leverage, save for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. Very simple. Anyone, anyone can say those things, but time and time again, humans have been shown to fall into these traps. And, you know, you see, I, I think there's a, every now and then I see CNBC articles that say, you know, 65% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, a bunch of people got blown out uh, by trading with leverage. Uh, you know, all sorts of things that are so simple to talk about are so difficult to do in practice. I want to get your perspective on first, why, why you think that is. Yeah, so it goes back to incentives, I think. The monetary incentives aren't aligned, right? When you live in a society where your money is constantly being inflated away, even if it's a you know the smallest amount, like at best if it's one to two percent per year, which is what the Federal Reserve would desire, you're still losing one to two percent per year of your money. And so, in your mind, right, the money's not really worth as much in each year, and therefore, I think that that your incentive to save is definitely less so because. Like, for instance, your emergency fund, you're supposed to have three to six months worth of, you know, immediate fixed needs or, or necessities. Most people, though, don't realize that if they create that emergency fund, they then have to increase the amount of that fiat emergency fund by inflation every single year. So you're already behind um, in the next year just by the fact that you have to put into that emergency fund. Um, you're behind also because you need to immediately move money as soon as you get it from your paycheck into um, investment vehicles. So, I mean, one of the reasons why a profession like mine even exists is because, okay, well, we're looking at these investments all the time. So we can help you move that money more quickly than you would be able to do otherwise. It's also why like the birth of index funds and all of these other ways to just, okay, don't think about it. Just take your money and, you know, whatever you can save, move. 
Um, and it's the same thing with, um, I think it was, was it the ECB who used the, um, the chairs example that everyone in Bitcoin likes to, <laughs> likes to point to? I mean, yeah, they do become more expensive every single year, right? So it actually does make sense to buy a chair today. Obviously, they don't store any value. Um, but like, I think that we were so turned on our head about what's important. Um, and then the last thing that, uh, that fiat money does or inflationary currencies do is they basically turn how you think about the world into really a much more material way. Um, and so instead of, you know, thinking about what we need on the inside, we're thinking a lot more about what we need around us. And so I think that like a lot of people have gotten off the need lots of stuff train. I think it's like sort of taboo to say, oh, I just want to buy lots of things and have my house be full of things. Um, but we've now moved more towards we need to have all these experiences in our life. You know, <laughs> it's the same thing, though, right? Because the experiences are what you experience in the material world. They're not they're they're sort of they're a better substitute probably than just, you know, buying a bunch of cat coasters and leaving them in your house and not using them. But like it's you know, it's probably more meaningful to maybe take your wife somewhere and do some nice things, but you don't need to have experience after experience after experience, right? You start to get diminishing marginal returns from that. So um, that's kind of how I see it in my head. There's always something kind of shiny out there that you can spend your money on. And so it makes it really hard to stick with these simple, um, these simple ideas that are clearly not easy for people to do because there's always something else that you can buy around the corner, whether it be an experience or a thing or a food or whatever else it is. Mm, that's really interesting. I never thought about the the shift from, you know, consuming physical products to experiences. But I think it's true. Like I, I think of myself as a, a relatively minimalist person. I, I don't have a whole lot of stuff and clutter in my house. But then I think to myself, it's it's like part of it is just that it moved online. Like instead <laughs> yeah. of having you know drawers full of DVDs and CDs and records and you know all the things that parents would have had it's like i have it in my phone now mm -hmm. but you know i don't you own have to any increase of it. how much you pay every single month for cloud storage <laughs> yeah exactly. a terabyte's not enough anymore yeah i hear you yeah <laughs> and then you're right like i i do i travel and stuff instead that's that's the experience that you know now you're spending money on that um so that's that's very interesting so you you, you look at the money and you say that's the reason why it's so much harder for people to uh, commit to their goals and, and be responsible with their planning. Is that is that primarily where? where I think it's from? partly that. I don't think it's a hundred percent that. I think that we often like to blame the money as the reason why we can't do these things that are simple but not easy. And the money is to blame for a lot of it, for sure. But it doesn't fix everything. I think the other thing is that. Like inside, we all deep, like we all really have more of a high time preference instead of a low time preference, right? It's a lot harder to delay gratification in general than it is to just immediately get that thing that you need, especially now that we live in such an immediate society where you can literally order anything to your door and have it in 24 hours, you know? So, I mean, that part of it, I think, is the fiat part. But the more we get accustomed to having things quickly, um, the more we desire to have more things more quickly. Um, and so it's sort of bringing yourself back from that. But there's also just, if you look throughout time, I mean, I don't have like great historical examples of this, let's say 3000 years ago, but, um, maybe in the last, you know, few hundred years, uh, with like in the industrial re revolution, like how things have changed and how products can be more quickly brought to market, um, and how marketing has gotten a lot more, um, interesting and, um, and exciting for people to maybe have these experiences or things. Um, it makes it more difficult to just delay gratification. And so 
I think that part of it is that we've lost a lot of spirituality in society, um, whether, you know, that be, it doesn't, you know, it, it could be from anywhere. Right. I mean, um, my family, like we're Jewish and we believe in, in God. Um, but there, you know, there are other religions where you can just sort of focus a little bit more inward and think about what you personally need as a human being, rather than all the things around you that can solve that problem. Um, we do a lot less of that now for sure. Um, I think that the more we learn about the universe, the harder it is for people to turn to a higher power to think about these things. Um, I don't think it, it might not necessarily be the only answer for everybody, but it it does tend to help if you stop thinking about everything materially around you and you start looking more inward to be able to actually delay gratification because then what you're thinking is, okay, I already have everything that I need. I don't necessarily have everything I want, but I do probably already have everything I need. Um, um, and so from there, you can sort of say, do I actually... I'm, do I need this thing? You know, the answer is usually no. Uh, do I want this thing? Okay, I do. Why do I want it? You know, and what are the pros and cons about it? We just don't pause enough in our, I think, in our financial lives or really in our lives in general to say whether or not whatever that next thing that we're going to do, buy, be a part of is actually going to serve us um, and what our, you know, what our true intentions are for how we're going to live our life. Mm, that's really well said. Now, it, it brings let's let's go to the topic of Bitcoin now, because I think there's I think you could make a case for that existing that that issue you talked about, about people, you know, wanting things outside. And uh, I think that exists in Bitcoin, too, where people people look to to Bitcoin is the experience or Bitcoin's the thing. Right. We're going to hodl. We're going to like buy as much as we can. We're going to hoard it. And that's going to solve our problem. Do you mm -hmm. see do you see that in the Bitcoin industry as well? Yeah, there's a spectrum for sure. I think that the there's so the the trope of Bitcoin fixes this. It's not wrong, right? It actually has a lot of truth to it. And I think that's why it's often used. It just it doesn't fix everything. Unfortunately, it fixes a lot of things, right? I think that if the money is something where the incentives are actually aligned for you to save, you're more likely to save for sure. It doesn't necessarily mean that you do. Um, but it does it does turn on it on its head the fact that your currency isn't going to just evaporate in front of your eyes. So it might be worth holding. Right. And so that just that small concept alone changes how people think about their spending. Um, I think another part of it, though, is that people have very high expectations for what Bitcoin is going to be in the near term. And so they think it's going to solve all their problems. And so that's where I think the leverage stuff sort of pops up where people think, okay, well, there's going to be hyper Bitcoinization, you know, in the next five to 10 years, in which case I can, you know, maybe even a shorter time frame, some people think. And so I could float interest rate, you know, the interest I have to pay on my loan to double up on my Bitcoin and use leverage and so forth. Um, and I think that that tripped up a lot of people um, in 20, in I guess it was 2021 when everyone thought Bitcoin was going 100K, didn't go, right? Uh, a lot of leverage unwound in the system. And so there's that part of it. I think there's also the part of it is just generally expensive to live these days. And so people should technically have a savings rate of at least 10%. Um, we generally recommend at least 20% of pre-tax income here um, in my practice. And so if you're not saving at least 10% or 20% of your pre-tax income, right? And then you're using Bitcoin as like sort of that hope. Okay, well, I can only save, you know, a dollar every single week, but a dollar today is going to be worth, you know, millions of dollars in the future. So I don't really have to do the work right now. I see that like some people think of Bitcoin more as a shortcut. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't view it as that. I think that the, the fundamental principles of of financial planning still apply, whether you use Bitcoin or not, um, and that you need to sort of stick to some rules of thumb and create more fences around how we all operate in the current 
world until we get to maybe a hyper Bitcoinization world. Um, maybe those fences will change. But for now, the fences are what they are. Um, and people should still be doing the work, even if it's hard to do. And I think that, that that's kind of the key is that it is really hard to do and people don't like to do it. Um, an example I often like to use is um, so this day, I feel like young people in this day and age and I'm I guess I should include myself in that. I'm not that young, but you know, like I feel like people really like to go out to restaurants because it's like, oh, you know, it's an experience. You get to see your friends and you get to have a good time, right? But like you go to a restaurant and like people drop anywhere between, you know, thirty to a hundred dollars on just their meal, let alone if they're going out with them and their spouse or, you know, them, their spouse and their kids, right? It can get really, really expensive to have this experience. But we do this experience all the time. Um, and like restaurants are packed even right now in, you know, where we're sort of in a recessionary style environment, right? Where people are still going to these expensive restaurants for these expensive experiences that you really can't afford, but have become sort of normal and commonplace. And I think that like, that's just sort of a proxy. I feel like in general, if you sort of look around at how like, you know, how commonplace things that really weren't commonplace have become for people like travel is a good example of that eating out at restaurants, um, doing just expensive things in general, things that maybe used to not be as expensive, but are expensive now, like taking your kids to a baseball game. It's like, or going to Disney world. It's like people think that they need to go to Disney world every single year with their kids. It's like, but it costs a thousand dollars a day for you to do that. Like, is that really <laughs> the right decision for your money? You know? And like, we have all these needs quote unquote of what's really important and what's like, what makes our life important. Um, and they're really at odds with what is actually important from a financial financial planning perspective and probably what's also generally important for people from just a, you know, a spiritual perspective of how they interact, um, like with the material world. So, um, that, that I would say is like, that doesn't, Bitcoin doesn't necessarily solve that need to have these things, right? It just makes it a little less enticing because your money is worth more. Hmm. Yeah. You don't have to go as far out on the risk spectrum to really try to get that extra, you know, one or 2% cause you, because you're okay, you, you know that your money is not going to be inflated away. Mm -hmm. yep, so exactly. do you think that in your in your practice, uh, do you see Bitcoiners or, or the people who do hold Bitcoin uh, among your clients, do they actually act differently in response to, uh, you know, it, it, when you think about being responsible and, you know, planning, planning for a long time horizon, managing your wealth correctly, do they actually, you know, take take Bitcoin to heart and, and, and recognize that this is something that can allow them to not have to take these uh, irresponsible risks and let them kind of just, you know, live their lives more, more peacefully and more. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's kind of a bell curve for sure. There's going to be people who obviously like excel really well at saving and who aren't, who are going to defer their immediate needs um, for as long as possible to stack as much as possible. And we've seen that I've seen that come through my practice for sure. And then I've seen the other side of it where Bitcoiners come through and they've got leverage. Um, they've got credit card debt. They're holding Bitcoin, but they've got all this other stuff going on on the fiat side because they haven't made any changes in their fiat life in order to hold Bitcoin. Um, and the hope is that Bitcoin will grow so much that they'll it'll basically grow them out of the problems that they have. And then there are sort of the people in the middle who, you know, they haven't changed. They've changed their life maybe a little bit. Maybe they're saving a little bit more, but they're still spending on stuff that's important to them. And they're like, well, Bitcoin will kind of fix this for me in the future. So I'll just, you know, I'll save what I can now and I'll save in Bitcoin. But I'm not like going to go crazy, you know, basically, like I'm not going to change that much about my fiat life in order to stack as much as maybe I otherwise could. Right. 
Um, so now let's talk about the the upside of Bitcoin and you know what it can do to someone's financial life, right? We see time and time again, Bitcoin's volatility can cause a lot of people to earn a lot of money in very short periods of time, or at least on paper in US dollar terms, right? You, you see your, your net worth go from, you know, whatever it was before you got Bitcoin, it's now 100x higher, it's now 10x higher. And you go, whoa, I've come into all this money. I kind of didn't do a whole lot for it. And it, it can play with your head. It can totally. change your, you know, perspective on money. It can change your spending habits. You know, we've seen a lot of people make a lot of money and lose a lot of money in the Bitcoin ecosystem. It it happens, it seems to happen more frequently here than it does uh, outside of Bitcoin because it's so volatile. Um, can you can you share any advice or you know perspective on on coming into a lot of money? What what have you seen clients do uh, to keep a cool head to make sure that they're you know sticking with their goals? Like what? How do you advise clients to you know make sure that if you write out a ten year plan with a client uh, that they stick with it and that they're not swayed by the price movements of Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, this question is really twofold. I think that part of it is um, managing managing people's feelings on the downside, for sure. Um, so I think the upside is a little bit easier to manage, right? Because people are just sort of excited. Um, and they start thinking about all the things that maybe they could buy or do or whatever. And then you kind of have to remind them, okay, hey, you know, maybe in the fiat world we live in right now, um, everything is, you know, hanky dory and great, but, um, maybe in a Bitcoin world, you actually <laughs> might not have enough. I don't know what it's going to look like right then. So, um, let's not get too excited. Uh, and so, right. Like, cause the end goal is really like, there's that meme, um, about Neo where, um, I forget exactly what it says, but it's basically the idea is that you don't go back from Bitcoin into fiat, right? At some point we live in a Bitcoin world and you're not, it's not about how much your Bitcoin is worth in dollar terms. We don't care about that. We just want to live in our Bitcoin world. So I think kind of going back to the mission on the upside kind of helps. The downside though is a lot more difficult. I would say that um, the first bear market that people go through tend to tends to give us the most brain damage in general. <laughs> I think that it's the hardest one, especially because for most people, what happened is that they did a lot of research going into it. Um, or maybe they just, maybe they didn't, but they put enough money into it on the way up where they're, and they felt maybe some wealth. They usually aren't like, I haven't, I haven't specifically dealt with anyone who really were like the top tick of every single um, of every single bull market. But I do have one client who got interested in 2017, bought almost close to the top. Um, and then same thing, came back in 2021, bought almost close to the top. Um, and dealing with the downside the first time for him was actually much more difficult than dealing with it the second time. The second time he's like, yeah, yeah, I've been through this, whatever. It's no big deal. Like it's going to go back up. Um, but the first time he was like, what has happened to me? You know, <laughs> I like heard about this from my friends and I did research and I talked to you and like, uh, it seemed like everything was okay. And you know, my money went from, you know, he lost 90% of his money. Um, and he did on paper. Right. And so managing some of the downside feelings for sure of like, you know, sort of the desperation, um, I think is, is, it's a little bit easier if you flip it on its head and think of it more as an opportunity. Um, but it can only be an opportunity to get more Bitcoin if you're managing everything else in your financial situation, okay, right? If you sort of, you know, went leveraged to the max and bought during a, a bull market, right? And now you're at, you're potentially getting liquidated and you don't have additional cash flow to be averaging in. That's a much different situation than, okay, I put a little bit in um, towards the top, but you know what? 
I save 20% of my income every single year. So who cares? Like now I can buy more. Um, and so sort of switching that mindset, but that, it, that implies that you have a, a good financial situation, a rock solid income statement where you are spending less than you make. Um, and you're saving for taxes appropriately, which is, I think, a problem in our community. Um, <laughs> and, you know, doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing so that you're not spending your tax money on Bitcoin and then liquidating so you can go pay for your taxes and so forth. Right. I've seen stuff like this happen. So I would say that, like, managing managing your income statement correctly is going to make sure that your balance sheet does grow. If you don't manage your cash flows properly, then you're not in a situation where you can really take advantage. And yeah, it's going to feel a lot more desperate when the price does go down. Um, so that I would say would be my biggest piece of advice for Bitcoiners who are going through the downside of Bitcoin. Um, and then from the upside, you also have to think about, I guess, what I, what I start thinking about is really more estate planning problems. So for a lot of people, right, if they did stack appropriately, and then Bitcoin does 10x, 100x, depending how long you've been holding it. Now you're looking at estate planning issues where you probably need to be considering trusts um, and other just other complex planning to make sure you're not giving it all away to the government should something happen to you. So um, there are other issues, too, like you can't hold Bitcoin jointly currently. Um, there's arguments in the community about whether or not that even matters. Um, I would say it probably does, because then that means that your wife doesn't have to go through probate. Presumably it's the husband who bought it. Husband drops dead wife has to basically wait for this asset to go through probate. Um, there's an unlimited marital deduction, so it's not like she'll pay taxes on it or anything. But you probably did lose some planning opportunities if you are above that estate planning exemption, in which case the husband could have gifted to the next generation or gifted to charity, given some to, his, to the wife, and then the wife could do the same thing to avoid estate planning taxes. So um, these are, I think, positions that people don't think that they're going to be in um, because, you know, especially if you're like, you know, a Bitcoin plebe, and you're just sort of humbly stacking. You don't think about the fact that like, oh, I can have $25 million um, if I'm doing this right. And now my wife and I have to th like hire a fancy attorney to set up trust for us. So that's another consideration. I think the other thing on the estate planning consider side that people don't consider is um, how much privacy you might lose when you pass away. Um, so even if, you know, you did your, your best and you only were able to stack half a Bitcoin, um, but then you die. Do you want people to know that you stack that half a Bitcoin, right? If you're not, if you don't actually have that in a trust, it depends on which state that you live in. But if you don't even have that in sort of a revocable trust or something like that, um, your address actually can be made public, um, like where you hold it, how much you hold it, and so forth, depending on which state you live in. Um, Texas right now is the best state for that. They have um, like basically a private docket where a creditor actually has to like go to the court and say, hey. Um, you know, so-and-so person who just died actually owes me a bunch of money and they have to go through court proceedings before they can get the probate docket to be opened. Um, and so that's kind of a nice feature of living in a state like Texas, but most states don't have that. So basically you pass away in like, you know, New York, California, Pennsylvania, something like that. Um, your Bitcoin's basically made public just, just based on the fact that you passed away and you had it. Um, I think, though, right, the the counter argument to that is as a Bitcoiner is like, well, nobody knows I have it. I stored it somewhere strange. You know, <laughs> I left my wife a treasure map. You know, there's obviously <laughs> things that you could do on the other side. But then what you're doing is like you're just you're evading the law. Right. And so um, at some point, like you have to make a decision. OK, is it more important for me to evade the law or like maybe I should take advantage of the opportunities that are offered to me within the law where I'm not going to break the law and potentially leave my wife in a bad situation where she can't actually ever spend this Bitcoin or do anything with it because she can't move it back into fiat. Um, so those are some considerations that I think of. I don't know if that's necessarily what, what you wanted yeah. to know in your question, but I mean, all of this is this is stuff that just hasn't really crossed my mind. 
And I think a lot of Bitcoiners probably feel the same way. And maybe it's because a Bitcoin's only been around for what, 14 years. Most, most have kind of been in the space for the last 10, maybe five, sometimes even last two years. It typically is a, this is an asset class that I think a lot of young people adopt really quickly. And it's, you know, if, if you're familiar with technology, you're more prone to maybe exploring it. And so what that ends up looking like is a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s not even thinking about, you know, estate planning. It's like, who cares? That's like 50 years later. I'll figure that out, you know, down the road. And so I think you're right that there's probably a a gap in the market here and and maybe space for some, you know, Bitcoin entrepreneurs to come in and build some interesting solution to solve this problem, make these handoffs easier if you pass away, if something goes wrong. You know, if you're talking about building like a joint account, like all these things, I don't think I don't think many I don't hear much discussion about any of this on Twitter. And yeah, so- <laughs> I don't. I, for sure, definitely not talked about on Twitter. Um, every time I brought up joint accounts, I get a lot of pushback actually from the community who is like, "We don't need that. You just, you know, you just put on a hardware wallet and you give it to your spouse." Like, it's like, no, yeah. no, but you bought it in your like under the current rules, you bought it in your name, and so that's how the government's going to view it, right? There's certain community property states where it's kind of irrelevant, but there's only seven of them. There's 50 states, right? So um, it's just, it, it gets a little bit more complicated than I think people like to think about. And then the last thing that people always say is, well, there's going to be hyper-Bitcoinization and none of this stuff is going to exist anyway. So why am I going to bother even doing any of the things that you're saying? And it's like, okay, even if that were true, you can still die right now. <laughs> you know, it's right. like, okay, but we we don't live in that world yet. So um, it's it's a balance though, obviously, for sure, of like trying to, you know, manage the fact that, yeah, most people who are in their 20s and 30s are not going to drop dead, right? That That's true. Um, there are older Bitcoiners. I actually have an older Bitcoiner in my practice who we're dealing, um, we're dealing with a lot of these estate planning issues because it's probably, you know, in the next 10 to 15 years for him that this is going to happen. It's not that far out. So a lot more of this stuff is like, we're, it's, it's really kind of hands-on practical right now where we're just trying to muddle through what we can based on the fact that none of this stuff has really been done before. Um, and just talking to attorneys that know um, really anything about like how property passes and then sort of applying it to Bitcoin, right? Because there aren't just specific laws about Bitcoin. I think at some point somebody prominent will probably pass away who owns a lot of Bitcoin and there will be a court case about it. And then after that, there'll be some sort of standard operating procedure that we all have to follow. But in lieu of that, right, we're just sort of, cobbling things together based on what we know now about the law and what Bitcoin is. Um, and so if you're, if, if you're of the view that Bitcoin is money, right, then money, ha- like if you held a bunch of dollars in a bank account, right, it's going to pass in a certain way. So if you're just viewing it as that, as like, okay, Bitcoin is, it's not fiat money, but it is a money, then you're basically, your bank account is like your hardware wallet or however you're storing it, in which case it has to pass in a certain way. And there are already laws and protocols for how that passes. Um, it's just that whether or not, you know, as a Bitcoiner, you want to recognize that you could be in that situation. I think the other thing that we don't think about is like, okay, we live in a society where you know, modern medicine is so great that you're actually much more likely to become disabled um, or incapacitated before you die, in which case mm. it leaves your family like in serious risk, right? I, I think that this is particularly true when like there's the husband Bitcoiner who is really diehard about it and the wife is not really on board, <laughs> for whatever reason and they can't seem to get it together but the husband continues to stack and we see this all the time um and the wife's like okay you know i guess i guess this is what we're doing but 
the, they never sit down and actually talk about where the Bitcoin is, how to access it. The wife's never done a transaction. Um, the wife is going to be probably completely overloaded if something were to happen to the husband, um, like from, you know, just from a medical standpoint, or obviously if like worst case scenario, husband passed, right. That's not the right time to be like, okay, now we need to sit down and do Bitcoin education. Yeah. <laughs> the right time to do it is when you're not sick and you're not about to die. Right. Um, and so I think these conversations are really hard for people to have. Um, but it's really about getting on first, getting on the same page, which is really hard for people. And then after you're on the same page being like, okay, now that we're on the same page, we need to do some education so that you're up to speed. Maybe you're not as good at it as I am, but like, you know, enough where if something does happen to me, you're not like freaking out and don't know where to go, what to do, any of these things. So, um, just having a plan in place, um, is I, I would say is really important for most people. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor voltage. Voltage empowers engineers to integrate Bitcoin and Lightning Network payments into their business stack with an enterprise-grade experience. The team at Voltage is building the complete toolset so that you can do more than simply spin up nodes, but also understand and interpret your nodes' data. Their new product, Surge, gives engineers the capability to quickly solve problems and optimize operations. With node insights and visibility through time series data, you get dynamic and complex insights never available before. You can get complete control with insanely fast onboarding, advanced client-side encryption, and zero management infrastructure, making backups, networking, and upgrades simple. Get a free seven-day trial today at Voltage.cloud. Now, when it comes to you know acquiring and storing Bitcoin, especially when you talk about these situations where you have a husband and wife, and maybe one has more Bitcoin knowledge than the other, and they're, they're trying to get on the same page. There's a lot of different ways in which you can you can get exposure to Bitcoin today. Not all of them even holding Bitcoin keys, right? You could have GBTC, you could have a, a selection of miners, public miners. Mm -hmm. You could hold Bitcoin yourself. You could, you know, there, there's there's a bunch of different kind of strategies you can take to, depending on where you are on that spectrum. And uh, you know, I wonder, like. How do you approach this topic of uh, where you should custody your Bitcoin if you're in that situation with, with I don't know, with a couple or with you know yourself and, and worrying about you know passing that on? Do you do you suggest people take full custody themselves? Do you say you know leave it to a custodian? What's your what's your view on that from from your standpoint? Yeah, I mean, my view is definitely that self custody is the way. 100%. Um, and it's getting both both spouses basically on board with doing self custody, obviously, is really important. But that self custody is like the is the number one goal. Um, mm. Whether that means holding in a single sig wallet or holding in multi sig wallet, I think it's going to depend on like, what the couple is up to. Um, I would say that's why something like Unchained Capital is such a great solution. Um, is because like you only have to figure out what to do with two keys, right? Two keys and two seed seeds, and then Unchained keeps track of the third one, right? If if a husband were like you know really into the code and wanted to set up his own multi sig, right? Obviously he could do that, right? but it's going to make it a lot harder on the wife if she 
can't do what he can do. And so, so like a solution like Unchained Capital is really nice because you just go in there, the wife can have your login, right? And everything sort of makes it a lot easier. They also have inheritance protocols where like you could basically say, this is my wife, you know, she's going to come if I die, she'll present the death certificate, the whole thing. So um, like, I think that from that perspective, that's not estate planning. And please don't anybody quote me that that's actually estate planning. And Unchained Capital would say that that's not estate planning, but they will at least make the probate process a little bit more easy. Um, and so... Um, I would say from that perspective, that is, that I would say is like the easiest way for people to have self-custody, but also sort of have your cake and eat it too. If you're not really that up on everything that you're supposed to be doing, then at least you have this interface that you can rely on. Um, and also if you lose a key, obviously you've got somebody who, who's backing it up for you. And I mean, it's very cheap if you do lose a key, I think it's like 25 bucks and they help you reset the whole system. And obviously you have to go buy a new hardware wallet. So it's a little more expensive, but yeah. Um, and so I would say like, that's a good solution for people. Um, if you can get your spouse on board and everyone knows how to use a multi-sig setup through like Sparrow or something like that, or, you know, open caravan, then great, you know, but I would say for most people, that's probably not the case. Um, and even if you're a, just a single guy who, you know, is going to leave it to your brother. Like in that situation, okay, if your brother also knows everything about Bitcoin, then it's no big deal. You store it hard, you know, store it on a paper wallet. I don't know what you want to do, but like, I'd maybe don't do that. But you know what I mean? Like you could just have a single seg wallet or you can have a treasure map for your brother or whatever you want to do. Um, but at least like there's a plan and you have to have a plan and the, the brother maybe needs to know how to access that plan should something happen to you. Um, I think like worst case scenario for a lot of people is you're so paranoid about your Bitcoin and you do some sort of single sig solution and you're afraid that somebody's going to get access to your Bitcoin and then you don't leave any plan and you leave some sort of cryptic notes about where people are supposed to go to access it and nobody ever accesses it. So you're just donating to the Bitcoin community. But you did all this hard work along the way to get yourself to that situation and then you got hit by a bus and now nobody knows where your Bitcoin is, right? Like, I know that these are sort of outlandish, you know, outlier situations that generally don't happen to people, but it could happen, right? In which case you want to be prepared. I think that's kind of the the benefit of something like multisig um, is that, you know, you can just give your brother one key if that's who mm -hmm. you want to leave it to. And it's no big deal because he can't actually access your Bitcoin without the other ones. So, um, yeah, I would say that, like, I like multisig a lot for that reason. Um, if you're in a situation, though, where wife's not really on board and husband only owns GBTC, that's like wife's best case scenario, right? <laughs> she just goes, gets the account, she sells it, and she moves on with her life. So um, obviously, that's not like, that's not what the outcome you want to have here, right? The outcome that you want to have is we both get on board, we both buy actual Bitcoin together, we both store it properly, right? There are steps that everybody needs to take. But um, in lieu of that, right, obviously, if you're not going to do all those things, then maybe holding GBTC in, in an account probably is the right way to go, because wife's not on board, then at least she could do whatever she wants with it after you die. Right. Now, so so do you then view, I guess, so is custody a portfolio risk if you're if you have something like GBTC? And then as a related note, is is KYC a portfolio risk? Is having coins that have been KYC that are bought through an exchange or something like that, is that a risk that you see that you think you know clients should be aware of, or is it relevant at all given the current regulatory environment in Bitcoin? Yeah, so GBTC, I think, is a risk, right? You don't hold your own keys. You don't really know um, at the end of the day. I mean, they have, um, they have like, the product itself is audited. They have um, a custody solution with Coinbase. Um, they also, I, I believe, if I read the product correctly, that Bank of New York Mellon is also acting as a trustee. Um, and so, in which case, yeah, it's probably there. But 
in the meantime, they're also selling Bitcoin every single month to pay for their management fee, which is really high. Um, Sonnenstein was just on um, CNBC basically saying that, you know, he's considering lowering, fee- lowering fees, but he's, you know, they're not going to lower fees if they don't have to. Um, and so, you know, they're trying to make the path for the ETF to work, but like, who knows how that's going to, if it's going to get approved and so forth. So you're sort of in this, I would say substandard product that was created a decade ago, um, which at the time was great for people because there really wasn't a good way for people to access Bitcoin. Um, There were very few places for people to go. Some of the places that you could go to buy Bitcoin weren't necessarily reputable. Um, Some of those exchanges have blown up for a number of reasons. Um, Coinbase, I think, is one of the few that's still here today um, from from that era of when that product was actually created. So it makes sense that it was trading at a dis- at a premium when the product first came out because people couldn't access Bitcoin the way that they can today. I think thinking that that product is going to go back to a premium is, I, I think it's misguided for sure. Um, products like what GBTC is, it's basically it was a private placement that now trades as a closed-end fund on the pink sheets. So what that means is that Closed-end funds are generally less marketable because they're less liquid. They have issues. You don't know whether or not the trust itself is holding what it says it's holding, right? You're sort of basing it on on like audits that happen where they take very small sample sizes of what's in the product. And then they say, okay, yeah, everything that they put in their financial statements is in fact true. Um, and so an audit sometimes gives people some sort of false sense of hope that everything is fine. Um, but because of how the product is, it's always going to, it, like they typically do trade at discounts. There are lots of closed end funds on the market right now that hold the same thing, let's say as an ETF, but they trade at a 25% discount. And people have this misguided assumption that if they go into this closed end fund, that someday that gap will close. Um, and generally it doesn't. So I think GBTC persisting at a discount is much more likely um, the discount maybe right now might be higher than it would otherwise be, um, but probably somewhere between you know 15 to 25% discount is probably right for GBTC. Um, and also they're going to be selling Bitcoin along the way. So it's not like holding that product that also charges you 2%, I don't think is the right way to hold Bitcoin for sure. Um, if you were to, let's say, go and hold the miners as an alternative, you're now holding a Bitcoin business. So there's a lot of things that go into mining. Um, and the average person probably doesn't understand that, right? Maybe the analysts who are focused on this and who are, you know, looking at mining all day or other people who are very, you know, hyper-focused in the Bitcoin space and understand everything that goes into a mining business can understand whether or not a specific miner is going to be around for the long term. But the average person can't. So if they think that they're just buying it because they're getting access to Bitcoin, right, that's a very misguided thought. Um, these miners, right, they have electricity costs and other things that go into mining. They're not just printing money willy-nilly, right? There's proof of work. And so I think that that's sort of a misguided assumption. Also, the average person generally goes on like Yahoo Finance and looks at earnings per share and then decides whether or not they're going to buy something. So, I mean, there's not a whole lot of investment analysis going into holding some of these things. So um, I would say from that perspective, yeah, just buying Bitcoin is going to like take a lot of the investment risk out of your portfolio. That's kind of what I like to think of Bitcoin is like, it's sort of the savior. We have this, um, I think we have this just general need to like make lots of money and have high investment returns. And because of this, people generally tend to think of themselves as at least an average investor, but most people actually think of themselves as an above average investor. And like the professionals are not even above average investors is what we found over time, right? So like for the layperson who's like, you know, working their job all day and then coming home at night and looking at, you know, earnings per share on Yahoo Finance, right? It's it's just not a productive use of time. Um, and so Bitcoin kind of solves that for you because you're like, okay, I can just hold Bitcoin and I don't need to like 
think about whether or not I have other investment opportunities for me right now. When something comes along the way and it seems like it's appropriate for me, then yeah, I can move that money. At least in the meantime, my money is not rapidly you know, being debased in front of my eyes. Um, and so that's kind of how I think about the average person holding Bitcoin, it's like it it just it gives you back like your time and your talent and your energy to go spend it somewhere else instead of spending all of your excess energy on trying to figure out how to beat inflation. And from a risk standpoint, do you see any any difference between, you know, buying that Bitcoin on an exchange or buying it through some other mechanism that's not KYC, uh, whether it's risks, regulations, tax planning, all these things like do you see any any difference or are those two, do you kind of bundle those two together and say, as long as it's Bitcoin, the asset, it doesn't really matter? Yeah, I mean, I err more towards as long as it's Bitcoin, the asset, it's probably fine. I think that the issue with non-KYC Bitcoin is that you just can't get enough of it in size. So if you're an investor who, let's say, you know, you've got a million dollars to allocate, it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to go out there and get a million dollars worth of non-KYC Bitcoin in a way that maybe is not completely dangerous for you <laughs> than it right. is for you to like just go on an exchange and, you know, go buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, I think for the average person, right? Yeah, it's kind of cool if you get some non-KYC Bitcoin or you earn some Bitcoin in your, in your, and like from doing actual work. Um, like, you know, I mean, we offer services, people have offered to pay us in Bitcoin. Um, we've accepted that, right? So like, there's a way right for people to get non KYC Bitcoin, obviously. Um, but there's currently the way that the US tax code is written is that you do actually need to check off the box that you received Bitcoin. So nothing's really quote, unquote, totally un KYC, right? The difference is that the address that it came from, the IRS is going to have to spend a lot more time deciphering because they don't actually make you list the address. So like there's some advantages, I would say, to having non-KYC Bitcoin, but like getting a lot of it is going to be a lot more difficult than doing it from a KYC perspective. And I would say, obviously, like having Bitcoin is better than not having Bitcoin just because you want non-KYC Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earning Bitcoin. Let's get into the differences there between buying and earning, because this is something I see developing on the lightning network and i think maybe i'm i'm looking at it maybe i'm a little bit early here in watching this unfold but i, I get really excited about it and i think there's i think there's a future where a lot of people earn much more money than they are today on the lightning network for doing little tasks sometimes it's little things uh there's a bunch of companies that already do this stack work uh stacker news fountain there's all sorts of ways you can earn little amounts of bitcoin i think we'll start to see that shift towards bounties and you know, almost jobs that, that people can earn large amounts of Bitcoin on Lightning Network. And so from, an, from a financial planning standpoint, what is that difference between buying Bitcoin and earning it? What do, what do you have to think of as a consideration? Yeah, so I think it depends on how you earn it as sort of, right? Like, so for instance, if you are like doing something like Lolly, for instance, where you earn rewards for spending credit card points, right? Like in in the current day and age, we don't pay taxes on the credit card points that we receive because we're basically just getting a kickback for the amount of high fees that we pay on our credit card. Um, and so like, unless the IRS comes out with different guidance, right? Of all of a sudden now, anyone who gets cash back on their credit card <laughs> now has to pay taxes on their cash back, right? If, if that's the route that we're going to go down, then yeah, like you earning Bitcoin from, you know, spending uh, on like a, like a service like Lolly, then yeah, for sure, you're going to have to pay taxes on it. For now, the way that it is, is that you don't. Um, and so you just earn your reward, you move on with your life. Um, there are... Like, for instance, if you're running a lightning node, though, and you're routing lots of payments and you're making money off of doing that, 
then you're actually running a business, in which case you have income that's coming in the form of routing fees. You presumably have expenses from running your node and maybe other things, other costly expenses that you can use to offset that income. You would then present what's called a Schedule C when you file your taxes as just like, you know, it could be even a sole proprietorship. You don't have to like incorporate and get an LLC or an S Corp to do this. You can literally just report on Schedule C. I made this amount of money from my Lightning node. Um, I would not tell them it was Bitcoin. I would just, I mean, you kind of can't, right? There's no way for you to say, hey, it was Bitcoin on your tax return. You just convert back to dollars how much you made. You would put that as revenue. You would list all your expenses. You would have some sort of net income and that's what you would pay taxes on. Um, And so there is a difference there, I would say. Um, If you're running any kind of business, though, that's going to be the case, whether it's, you know, I... I don't know, I sell ice cream cones and I only accept lightning payments, right? If I sell ice cream cones, then people pay for that ice cream cone. I have some sort of cost of goods sold that I'm going to put on my Schedule C and then I'm going to have net income there. So anytime that you're running any kind of a business, then yeah, you do need to report it under the current rules, the way that it stands, but you have the expense line that you can use to offset that income. Um, People like to go crazy with their expenses and deductions. Um, I would say keep it simple. The more you actually spend in your business, the less you make. I know that this is like something that's very simple and self-explanatory, but yet like it seems like I need to repeat this over and over again, right? If you have revenue and you have very high expenses, you have very low net income. And from a tax perspective, obviously that sounds good, but that also means that you made very little money running this business, in which case it doesn't really benefit you to like, you know, go lease a car and deduct it, right? For your ice cream business and so forth. Um, I think that then people, it's, it's sort of going back to that idea of like the materialism that we talked about in the beginning where, okay, like if your goal then is to like have some sort of, you know, leased vehicle at some point in your life, then yeah, I guess the best place to put it would be in your business. Um, But maybe that shouldn't be your goal, right? (laughs) Maybe your goal should be, you know, something else besides that. So um, yeah, I think that that, that's something that people need to consider um, that business deductions can get out of hand and that um, that net income is actually something to strive for rather than to to reduce it as much as possible so that the IRS um, doesn't get as much of their tax dollars. Um, and then there are other things to consider, like if you are the person spending money on the Lightning Network or on the Bitcoin Network, when you spend that money, what the government considers is that you actually are converting, even if the person on the other side doesn't convert it back to Bitcoin, they're saying that, that was, that's basically a taxable transaction to you. Um, there's a bill that came out from Senator Lummis and Gillibrand that originally said that um, $600 would be like the de minimis if you spent $600 or less, then, you know, it wouldn't, we wouldn't tax you on it. Um, that actually got knocked down all the way down to $50 um, and has not been passed yet. So, I mean, I think that even if they put it in, then it was a dollar, it's better than nothing, right? It just means that like from a Bitcoiners perspective, okay, we have a small win. We got our foot in the door. We're going to get that increase maybe over time, but at least we got something here where you can go and, you know, buy a coffee or a quarter of a coffee um, and and not pay any taxes on it, right? So um, I think that anything that we can get passed through Congress from that perspective will will be an advantage to Bitcoiners. But as it stands right now, any transaction you do, whether it's a penny or, you know, $1,000, you you technically have converted from Bitcoin back to fiat and you need to pay taxes on whatever capital gains you have. So um, it gets more complicated to think about it from that perspective, right? Because let's say you bought Bitcoin at, you know, $5 a coin. Um, and then you, you've sat on it forever and you never bought any more. So you don't have any other cost basis to average it out. If you go and spend that Bitcoin right now, right, it's $20,000. 
per coin. Obviously, you're not going to spend $20,000 worth of Bitcoin on a coffee or something like that, but you need to adjust your cost basis accordingly. Basically, it's nearly 100% taxable in that case. Uh, whereas if you bought Bitcoin at $70,000 a coin and then you went and spent it on coffee right now, you actually have a tax loss that you can take. So you just have to have good accounting, unfortunately. Mm. So right now, any any amount of Bitcoin that you send out, if you send it, if I send it to a merchant and they keep it as a lightning payment, they keep it in Bitcoin, or whether they convert to dollars or whether I swap it into dollars, anything is technically a taxable event. Yes, technically. Um, you can do things like um, spend and replace is, I guess, what we call it, where you literally go buy the Bitcoin, and then you send it out. And so that, I think, removes any of the accounting on it. You're like, okay, well, I just bought this Bitcoin for the purpose of spending it. Bitcoin price didn't move very much between the time that I bought it and the time that I sent it, in which case it's a wash and I'm not going to worry about it from a tax perspective. But technically, yes, um, anything that you spend on in Bitcoin right now would technically be taxable or you would get to take a tax loss. Yeah, it seems like a, it's very cumbersome right now for Bitcoiners to have to deal with this mental overhead of taxation uh, and managing your capital gain every single time you use it. Uh, and, you know, I know you're not a tax advisor necessarily, but I, I you know, I just want to riff on this topic if if you're okay with that. Just um, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking about like, what is, I know technically you have to spend, you have to record every single, you know, payment and, and all the taxes. Is this something that you think everyone in Bitcoin should be doing? Because there's, there's multiple schools of thought here. Like one is, yes, record everything, play it by the book, do everything right. You know, if someone comes after you, you, you have all your books managed. Another school of thought, which I hear a lot of Bitcoiners take is, you know, this Bitcoin thing is going to disrupt the whole legal framework and regulatory system that we rely on today. And we're not going to have to deal with any of these taxes when Bitcoin's $20 million and everyone uses it for everything hyper Bitcoinization is going to kind of like solve my tax problems for me. And I'm not going to have to face any of the capital gain stuff because everyone will be using Bitcoin. It'll just be money. It'll be, you know, that'll just be what everyone does. And then I think there's another school that maybe in the middle there that says, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll manage my taxes. I'll make sure I record all the big stuff, but when it's little stuff on the lightning network, when it's five, 10 bucks, coffee, whatever, I'm not going to do any of that. Um, yeah. What, where do you kind of fall? And when you think about those, like uh, those are the three buckets of people I see, at least uh, maybe there's mm -hmm. more, but I hear a lot of conversation coming from all sides there and would love to know like where, you know, what, where, where you fall into the spectrum and what you kind of point clients towards. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the hyper Bitcoinization thing, I, my problem with it is that we don't live in that society now. Right. So if you're not doing the proper record keeping, right. If, if you don't want to do whatever on your tax return, that's fine. But if you do turn around and get audited and you haven't done any of the proper record keeping, what you basically have to do because you were like hyper Bitcoinization, whatever, I don't have to deal with this is now you have to go and do the record keeping. So you could show the IRS that you didn't do anything bad um, or otherwise you will pay, you know, back taxes plus penalties. Cause basically usually by the time the IRS gets around to you, it's three or four years later. Um, it's not like, Oh, I filed my 2022 tax return. And by, you know, by December of 2023, they came and they said, no, you have an error here. No, that's not how the IRS works at all. They're so backlogged with stuff that people that they're auditing that usually like for, if somebody comes around to audit you in 2023, 
it's probably from 2020 or earlier. So not only are you going to get nailed for like just the amount of time that you have to spend doing all this record keeping, um, but you're also potentially going to owe a bunch of back taxes plus penalties on it um, and and interest basically because you're going to get penalized for not having paid the taxes and then interest for the last three, four years or however long it took them to audit you um, on that as well. So I would say it's probably not worth it, right? <laughs> For and I would think that like in the middle camp, the like the big stuff, right, where it's worth the IRS auditing. Yeah, have good records, produce those records, do what you're supposed to do. We don't live in a hyper Bitcoinization world, in which case it does make sense. And also it would make more sense for the IRS to come after you. It makes a lot less sense, I think, for the IRS to come after people for like, you know, $5 worth of coffee. Um, if you bought, you know, $5 worth of coffee every hour of every day for the last five years, then yeah, it's going to be significant, in which case, like, maybe the IRS would want to come after you after that. But, um, you know, I would say use some judgment here. You know, either way, though, keeping records is, is good, in general, I would say, um, and not having good records is just sort of lazy. Um, you should have them for yourself, simply because you want to have them, um, not necessarily even for a regulatory body. Um, I think in general, it makes sense for people just because they can see what they've done over time, right? It's sort of the advantage of, let's say, even if you don't, you're not on a budget, but if you track spending, right, then you have a good idea of where your money went. And at the end of the year, you could say, okay, like, do I value where my money went? Right. Maybe I want to make some changes next year. But if you don't look back at any of that data, then you don't have any way of making future decisions about like past behavior, basically. So even if it's not like I'm using this budgeting software to be on a strict budget, um, it does help to have that backwards looking data. It's the same thing with Bitcoin. Right. If you can if you have that backward looking data, you can say, OK, did I stack appropriately? Do I need to be saving more? I won't know any of this stuff unless I actually look at my cost basis and how much how much money I actually allocated towards Bitcoin in that year relative to how much income I made. Um, and the only way you could do this is by keeping records. So I would say record keeping in general is just a good, you know, best practice, whether it be for the IRS or not. Um, and then I would say, obviously, you know, if you're doing if you have a bunch of small transactions, I probably wouldn't worry too much about it. I would still probably have records about it so that you have it for yourself of like, hey, I spent, you know, a hundred thousand sats on this book and now looking back on it that book was really expensive did i even read it you know <laughs> that yeah. kind of stuff is maybe useful but um other than that you know um, i wouldn't worry that much about the small stuff but i would still keep records of it yeah yeah that's fair i think keeping records is a good thing in general even if only for personal personal you know looking back on it and, and figuring out whether or not you made the right decisions in, in the past year but w one of the things that I'm also noticing on the Lightning Network is that record keeping is very difficult when there's dozens of apps that let you earn Bitcoin and that don't really communicate with each other. So for example, this podcast, the Lightning Podcast, listeners send in sats. I get a sats balance that accrues in uh, Fountain by the podcasting app I use. Then I share a link to this podcast. I post it on Stacker News maybe. Someone sends sats to Stacker News and that goes into my Stacker News account. And all across the board, these are like, you know, sometimes they're like less than a penny in yeah. sats. Sometimes they're, you know, a few pennies, sometimes a few dollars, but very small amounts and spread really far and wide. I, I wonder, like, how do you, are, do you have any tools that you use today? I know maybe lightning payments aren't, aren't necessarily the focus for all your clients today, but you probably have clients that have purchased on different exchanges and have have their records spread across different exchanges and wallets and things like that. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any tools that you use to collect all that and anything that you would like Bitcoin entrepreneurs to build? Any, any, are there any pain points for you and your clients uh, when it comes to this record keeping process that you think need to be solved? Yeah, there are tons of pain points. <laughs> All right, let's hear them. <laughs> um, okay, so the record keeping thing is very difficult. I would say even like a, an exchange like Coinbase that's publicly traded and audited, you still go in there and you have to download this like convoluted CSV file where you can't actually even just get like purchases on one, you know, one page and then transfers on another page, right? It, it's all sort of messed up together. And then, you know, you as the as the owner of your Bitcoin needs to go in there and decipher, okay, this one was a buy, this one was a transfer, you know, they actually have denoted now that those things are transfers. And this is like the best case of record keeping right now that I'm talking about. So um, in the best case scenario, it's still kind of garbagey. Um, but I think that that's because like they don't have to, as of now, um, these exchanges don't comply with the 1099 rules that all the other exchanges do. So um, if anyone is a Bitcoiner who also holds, you know, a brokerage style account, then you get like issued a 1099 from these brokerages. And they're actually really nicely laid out. They have the date right there. They show like the actual dollar amount of the purchase. They usually show the um, the price of the stock at which you purchased it at. Um, and they show like basically the difference of where you sold it and so forth in the lots. So it's all actually right there in one line. Whereas with Bitcoin transactions, generally you see buys and sells, you have to kind of match them up on your own. Um, and that's actually to a Bitcoiner's benefit, I think, from a tax perspective, but it does create more accounting. Um, from what you're talking about with multiple Lightning wallets, um, I haven't actually, I mean, I haven't been in that many Lightning wallets to even be able to pull that that data, but uh, from what I have been able to pull, it's it's a mess um, and it's very difficult. And so I would sort of lean on the IRS's rules about who has to pay taxes in that perspective, right? Like, for instance, if you're earning in Lightning, uh, so, I mean, really, sorry, I'm sort of thinking on the fly about this. Technically, the letter of the rule is that if you earn anything and you have, you know, expenses to offset it, you need to pay money, like pay taxes on that net income. But like if you were a contractor working for a business and uh, they basically they don't issue a 1099 for an, anything under six hundred dollars. Basically, the IRS is like, it's just not worth our time. It's not worth the business owner's time. And so I would say from that standpoint, six hundred dollars is probably a good cutoff for some of these businesses to just sort of focus on. If it's six hundred dollars or less, maybe don't worry so much about it. Um, the cutoff for retirement plans is actually three hundred dollars. So if you wanted to be more conservative about it, I, you would use the three hundred dollar number. If I made three hundred or less, I'm just not going to worry about it. Um, I should still probably figure out a way to to do some record keeping for my own standpoint. Um, and also in case I get audited, but that I probably don't need to report it from that perspective. That is taking an aggressive view though on it. Um, and the the letter of the rule would be that you report 100% of any income that you make, in which case you would have to go through transaction by transaction and see how much in dollar terms that Bitcoin was worth when you received it, um, which I know could be problematic for a lot of people because you don't actually get that when you pull this data, you only get the Bitcoin uh, value. So I would say the easiest pain point to fix would be for a software engineer to also be able to just put in where the price was at the time that you did that transaction. Because if you've got thousands and thousands of transactions, especially on the Lightning Network, it's going to be so difficult for you to sort of go onto like, you know, Yahoo Finance or wherever you're going to go to pick what Bitcoin price was related to that transaction and so forth. Um, so that would be the easiest way to make record keeping just a little bit better. Um, I don't do that much in a lot of these softwares. I know there are a bunch of different softwares out there that you can use like crypto tax and so forth, 
we pretty much do everything on spreadsheets here, but that's mostly because our clients are kind of buy and hold and not doing all this other stuff. So unfortunately, I don't have that much advice to give you from the account from this so like the accounting software standpoint. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree though. It's it's an absolute mess on a lot of a lot of Lightning apps and Bitcoin apps. Uh, you know, trying to pull in records, it's it's not easy. And I think what ends up happening is just a lot of times people go for the small stuff and just forget about it. Just kind of just push it under the rug and say, you know, it's too it's too much. I give up. I can't mm -hmm. can't do all this recording and tax keeping and you know uh, manage all these little tiny payments, but. I wonder if you think that is a, you know, I think from a regulation standpoint, is this a vector for attack on Bitcoin where governments, maybe, maybe one government, maybe it's in the US or maybe multiple governments together say, hey, anyone who has been KYC'd at an exchange, we have record of you holding Bitcoin. We're going to come out, we're going to audit you specifically because we're pretty sure you're not keeping records because... We know all the Bitcoin software doesn't really do a good job of that. Mm -hmm. And we know there's going to be some, you know, um, some numbers that don't add up. And then next thing you know, you know, millions of Bitcoiners have all collectively been audited, are all being fined, you know, and, and now have, you know, have to sell some Bitcoin to pay off these, pay these, you know, uh, on, on all these regulations that they didn't, didn't keep a, close eye on. Is, is that something that you think of as a potential attack vector? I know I'm kind of going deep in the weeds on this topic, but I think, I think <laughs> no, a lot fine. about that because there's so little that has been, we have so little clarity on like what kinds of payments on, especially on Lightning, maybe it's still too small, but what kind of payments are, uh, what they're taxable as, like a value for value payment. Is that even income? I don't even know. You know, no one said to me, whether or not that classifies income, I can't find that in the tax code anywhere. Is it a gift? Is it a donation? You know, all these things. And, and does that open us up for, for regulatory attack? Yeah. So on the value for value stuff, I would say that it probably is just a gift. And if you're being gifted less than $15,000 worth of Bitcoin and you can prove as such that you can say, hey, they liked what I did. You know, I didn't give them anything in return other than the fact that they just listened to this podcast. Um, I asked for donations literally on my podcast. Maybe I don't know how you're how you're presenting that people pay for this, but you might want to change your language so that it's very clear that people are making donations and you're not actually sending them a T-shirt or anything, you know, after. Um, so <laughs> that that would be like sort of, you know, evidence that, no, these were in fact donations and they're gifts to me, and in which case they are under 15K and I don't have to pay taxes on them. Um, but yeah, I mean, the attack vector thing... I think it's it kind of goes back to like how much revenue will the IRS actually get from doing this? So mm -hmm. I think that like they think in those terms too, because even though like governments are notoriously bureaucratic and they lose money and everything else, the IRS actually is the money making um, section of the <laughs> of the U.S. government, right? In which case they you know they do go after people for small amounts for sure, but those small amounts have to be high enough that it's still worth their time to do it because they still need to you know have a appropriate number of agents to be doing this. So I, that's sort of where I'm going back to like that $300 and $600 number. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense for them to do that because it takes a lot of time and energy and effort on their part, especially if it's like, you know, thousands of transactions as well for it to only add up to $300. It's like, 
okay, they also actually have to go through all those transactions and be able to do that. So um, that's where I would say like, but anything above that, they find actually worth it to them. So that's where I would say it does make sense to keep these records and, and so forth. That way, you know, should something like this happen, yeah, potentially um, the IRS could come after us. I, I mean, I would say the other thing is that if they do actually get some better software engineers on board to be able to go through these things a little bit more quickly, then it's going to be a lot easier for them and a lot more cost effective for them to actually be auditing people. So again, it goes back to, I think, the record keeping for sure. Um, and and just dotting all of your I's and crossing all your T's on your tax return every single year. I mean, we do still live in a fiat world, right? You should be paying taxes on whatever it is that you're supposed to be paying taxes. And obviously, you know, you can't overpay the IRS in advance of them potentially auditing you later. And most people don't want to overpay the IRS just in case they get audited later, obviously. But, you know, <laughs> maybe having some sort of emergency reserve or something in fiat to help you should something like this happen so you don't have to liquidate your Bitcoin um, is a good idea. And so um, that's where you go back to like that three to six months worth of expenses. It's not going to really harm you then if you do have this little fiat reserve um, whereas, you know, if you didn't have it, then yeah, you would be liquidating your Bitcoin. Um, do I see it though as the end of Bitcoin? No, I just see it as like the government being annoying as usual about, you know, government things. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fair enough. I think that's well said. And there's, there's obviously a lot of nuance here and depends on the amounts of Bitcoin we're talking about, the jurisdiction you live in. There's a lot of variables here at play, but I appreciate you bringing color to this situation because I know you know, we are approaching tax season, I guess, in the spring. And I think a lot of people still have unanswered questions. So yeah, thank you for, for, sure. for bringing light to this issue. I would also uh, say, right, if whatever you're doing in 2022 and 2023 is going to be audited in two to three years from now, right, three to four years, potentially. So right, if you haven't done good record keeping in the past, fine, like maybe focus this year, okay, this year, I'm going to actually keep good records, um, and make it a little easier on myself should something happen, especially if you've been in Bitcoin a while, right, maybe you're running your your lightning node for a while, and you're routing payments, maybe you didn't really make that much money before, and it's not worth it for the IRS. But now maybe you are making more money, in which case it does make sense for you to be keeping records. So um, if it's too hard to go back, then, you know, just say, okay, I can't go back, but I can do it going forward. Yes, I agree. And that's one of the things I think on the Lightning Network specifically, people will find themselves in that situation where if you look backwards, you know, I look last year, for example, I may have only been earning some of these apps like a dollar a month or something like some pennies, yeah. like nothing. And but now you fast forward to today and I, I regularly consolidate the lightning payments that I've received on all the different apps that I use, a dozen different apps, and I put them together and I go, that's like a hundred bucks. That's 200 bucks. You know, that's, it's not something it's per month. And then, you know, it's a couple thousand bucks a year. And you're like, okay, it's not nothing anymore. I gotta, mm -hmm. gotta come up with a plan. Right. Yeah. So, I would say the other thing is right. If you're using these apps and things, then the, like the app itself could be targeted. Whereas if like, you know, I don't know, you're just, set up a lemonade stand like your kid on the corner and you just use your mom's lightning wallet right i don't know just using an example yeah Maybe my kids will do this at some point um like it's a little different right because people are just paying your lightning wallet and like if especially if you have non-custodial lightning wallet right now you're in a situation where the irs doesn't necessarily know what's being held if you have a custodial lightning wallet then they can actually go after the company and, and get the records in which case it would be a little bit easier for them to audit so these are some things to think about um where like is the place that you're receiving it centralized, in which case they can go after that centralized authority. If they can, then yeah, you need to keep better records. If they can't, and it's like sort of irrelevant amount of income, then I wouldn't worry so much about it. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Stackwork. 
Stackwork is a lightning-powered platform for generating high-quality transcripts of all your audio or video content. They combine AI engines and hundreds of human workers all over the world who are paid over the Lightning Network to assemble these transcripts. And that's what lets Stackwork create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. To see the results for yourself, you can check out my personal website where I host transcripts for all my podcast episodes. If you want to learn more about Stackwork, visit stackwork.com. That is S-T-A-K-Work.com. All right. Well, this was an incredible conversation. Uh, thank you again for your time. I want to jump into a quick segment I do at the end of every round, at the end of every episode. It's called the lightning round. Uh, just a couple of rapid fire questions to finish this off. All right. First one, uh, what has there been any book that has meaningfully changed your view of the world? Hmm. Um, this is going to go off the reservation <laughs> because um, I've in the last few years become much more religious. Um, so um, I've been, I like regularly read Torah and um, I'm Jewish. And so um, it's called Derek Hashem. It's a book by, um, we call him the Ramachal. Uh, everyone else would know him as uh, Moshe Chaim Luzado. Um, and he's significantly changed how I think about um, Judaism and just God and the world in general. So I would check that out. Okay. Um, if you could only hold one asset for the next 10 years and it could not be Bitcoin, what asset would it be? Oh, yeah. I'd probably just hold an index fund of stocks. Be really boring. Yeah. I'd probably just hold the S&P 500. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> um, have you changed your mind on anything related to Bitcoin in the last year? In the last year? Or recently, if you can remember anything you've recently changed your views on. Um, yeah, I mean, I would think, I guess this is also related to sort of my spiritual journey. I would say that like, I could see a lot more clearly how, if your money is better, how you could be less focused on the outside world and more focused inwards, um, and making changes personally. Um, it's been something I've just been personally focused on is like how to just how to make myself better, right? It's the Jordan Peterson idea of clean your own room before you try to clean the rest of the world, uh, world's room. And so like, I think that it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to do that when you're not in a now, 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 me, me, me kind of economy. Um, and so I, like my, my hope is that that will help people as Bitcoin continues to mature and evolve. But I think that that's obviously going to be a much longer process than anybody anticipated. Um, my view beforehand was always just, you know, that it would remove governments. Um, and I think it, it'll, like, I think that that will probably happen too, but I think that that also will take a long time. Um, but it's not just about the removing governments part. There's like all sorts of other places that Bitcoin can, can interact in people's lives to make, make it better. And that's, I guess, is my hope, or at least my hope for like the next generation. We have kids and, you know, you, you kind of hope for a better life for your children. So, yeah. Love it. Uh, final question. Who is one person in the Bitcoin ecosystem that you'd like to give a shout out to for doing great work? Oh, I love that. Um, I really like Jimmy Song's stuff. Um, I, yeah, I like Jimmy Song a lot. Um, I, I, I follow his work. I've met him. He's they're They're just, a, they're a great family in general. Um, and he's definitely helped me a lot. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm lucky I live with Pierre Rochard, so I get, a, <laughs> I could, I probably should have said him first, but I get so much Pierre Rochard all the time that I often think that sometimes when I go on these podcasts that maybe people don't learn anything new because it's just like a parrot, you know, of your husband. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, um, in, when I, when, when like, I don't have, 
when when I when I like I'll ask Pierre something and he'll answer it. And sometimes if I feel like I need a little bit more, I actually always turn to Jimmy's song for it. So I like that. Um, well, thank you again for the time. And uh, before you go, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Morgan with an E Rochard. Um, my financial planning website is originwa.com. I also have a financial consulting practice. So if you just need some advice on your Bitcoin and you don't need advice on really anything that's investment related, then I can help you there at a much better price point from a compliance standpoint. So that's moneyowners.com. Um, Pierre and I have a podcast. It's called Bitcoin for Advisors. Um, so check that out as well. Uh, we're just out there trying to get people good information about Bitcoin. We try to put those out monthly. Um, and yeah, I think that's it. Those are all the places. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Oh, sorry. I have one more thing. I have one sure. more thing. I wrote a book. It's called the, um, the personal finance quick start guide. It's not directly Bitcoin related, but it, um, it is personal finance related. So if you like some of the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning, you'll probably get a lot out of that. I'm also writing a second book. It's called Bitcoin personal finance. If you'd like to be interviewed for that book, I'm doing, I'm trying to get a hundred interviews. We're trying to get people from different demographics um, and all the things so that we can just get a good idea of what people need from this book. Um, and so I have a team of uh, folks who are doing interviews for me right now. If you'd like to be interviewed, just reach out to me via DM. You can also just go to bitcoinpersonalfinancebook.com, put your email address in there and we'll let you know when I have a book. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for the time and I uh, hope we can do it again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin. It was a pleasure. In the last 30 days, you guys sent in 209,000 sats. That came in from 89 different supporters. We've seen some pretty big boosts lately, so thank you to everyone who has been supporting the show. We've also got a lot of comments and questions that have come in in the last seven or eight days. Let's start with Vake, who says, in response to episode 93 with Paul Stork, BIP 300 and 301 should be taken more seriously by the Bitcoin community. Sent in 10,000 sats with that comment. Thank you, Vake. We have Tom Zerubsan boosted 1,000 sats and said, I saw your pod come up a few times on Twitter. Turning into this episode is my first one. Enjoy the boost. Thank you, Tom. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. This was episode 93 as well. Blockchain Boog sent 10,000 sats and said, what is the block explorer that Paul likes? Yug.io. Great conversation. I think BIP 300-301 is an attack on altcoins. I would pay sats to see Paul and John Carvalho chat about these ideas. Now, John Carvalho I had on the previous episode. That's very interesting. Uh, thank you, Blockchain Boog, for the 10,000 sats. And Jeffrey commented, it's yog.io, Y-O-G-H.io. I think that's the block explorer. North of the Wall sent in 210 sats. It said, great episode in response to episode 90 with Evan Kaloudis on Zeus. So I'm so grateful for the work Evan is doing. Zeus is just amazing. Uh, we also had a comment from Captain Stacks who says, drive chain is an attack on Bitcoin. We had the Captain Stacks as well said, John Carvalho is a very rational Bitcoiner on episode 92 with John Carvalho. Uh, Rot13Maxi said, uh, boosted 5,000 sats and said, great episode in response to episode 93 with Paul Stork. BTC Curacao boosted 100,000 sats and said, I sent the 100,000 sats last episode with Bitcoin error log. That's John Carvalho. 
Keep up the good guests. Thank you, BTC, Curacao. Uh, half of that 100,000 sats was sent to Bitcoin Smiles for the uh, John Carvalho episode. Blockchain Boog sent in 1,000 sats as well and said, making sure these splits still work in response to episode one, the very first episode of the show with Oscar Mary. I got your comment, Blockchain Boog. Everything is still working. Blockchain Boog also sent in a comment on a few other episodes. Episode two with Collider says, I'm from the future. Kraken implemented Lightning. Binance and Coinbase still know. Blockchain Boog also says, yes, sats for stocks. Let's do it. It's January 2023. Collider hasn't implemented this yet. Then we have Vake who says, good to hear an explanation on the difference between Cashew and Fedimint on episode 91. And we have New Legacy boosted 200 sats and said, excellent interview with Mr. Mary on your first show. That again is episode one of the Kevin Rook show. He says, you asked great questions that I had no idea before on the Lightning Network. Makes me more committed to the success of the movement. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who's been sending in sats. I appreciate it. It's great to see more boosts coming in. And uh, thank you to all the new listeners who have supported for the first time uh, in the last week or so. Can't wait to see what you guys send in next week.